Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. Well, folks, we are nearing the finish of let's just call it an unbelievable year. Shout out to you for doing your magic to get yourself your family, and friends through trying, uncertain, and perhaps wild times. I hope you're taking care to have quality time now and create space to reflect on what you're grateful for in your life. My final guest for 2020 is a futurist with a knack for breaking down the complex or even the mundane into simple terms that trigger new ideas and practices. He specializes in marrying business strategy consumer insights, and technology, all with humanity at the core. Previously, he's mostly been an executive for and partnering with entertainment enterprises, smaller and larger, including 20th Century Fox Film, Disney, MGM, and Warner Brothers. He's also recently formed the nonprofit Impact Change Foundation with his wife, Elise Barnsberger. Now in sunny Los Angeles, I'm delighted to welcome Jonathan Tavs. Hi, Molly. Thanks for having me. It's, it's an honor to be here, your last guest of 2020, and, uh, and also your 60th episode. That's, that's quite a feat, so congratulations on that. Thank you very much, and you're making my day by, by joining us and creating space, and, and as we prepped, um, it has been a lot of uh, tough stuff for people, for sure. Uh, I really hope that uh, we'll have a real optimistic and hopeful chat for folks because there's really uh, a lot to be blessed about now and moving forward. And, it's, um, and I'm, I'm really excited that you've cleared four hours for this session, right? Because there's so oh, much to unpack. <laughs> totally. We've totally blown out <laughs> the next three shows. We're taking on the next <laughs> half day. <laughs> They don't mind. So, they don't mind. <laughs> so, uh, listen, we're just to hear, you know, a little bit later about how exactly you do help folks shape their future. Um, but let's begin, though, with the personal and help listeners get to know you a bit. So I just I'd appreciate your starting us off with how you've moved through life. How far do you want me to go back? <laughs> <laughs> it's all up to you. <laughs> um. Uh, yeah, we don't need to make it a history lesson of me, but just really quickly, I was I was fortunate to be able to grow up in Miami uh, at a time where there was a lot of change going on. It was a it was a small town. This was pre Miami Vice, or when I was a teenager, that's when the Miami Vice show came up. But uh, I was really fortunate to grow up in a place where, you know, while I was in elementary school was the Mario boat lift where all of a sudden there were a bunch of people coming into my school that didn't speak the language and uh, got to experience at a young age, welcoming people like that into the fold, uh, into the community. And, you know, in the seventies with a lot of Haitians coming into Miami, I was really lucky to be in such a diverse and energetic town and, Looking back, I don't think I thought of this until recently, but the amazement of how fearless I was growing up. I was always an extrovert, always wanting to be on stage, wanting to have an audience. But, you know, even when I was a really 
little kid, uh, I used to just go, I would go to like Kmart with my mother and while shopping, I would walk away from her, which couldn't have been uh, not stressful for her, but I would go up to strangers and ask them to get me a slushie. Uh, so I guess I was ballsy since, a, since an early age, um, but it really was, I was a driven kid and I was, I, it was seeing things that I wanted uh, or hope for, and then instead of just waiting for it to come, you know, of course, being respectful and, and kind and, and considerate, but, you know, whether it was that I, I wanted to be a ball boy for the University of Miami football team, I, I was the one that made the call to the Hecht Athletic Center and said, how do I become a ball boy? And my first year as a ball boy was 1983, which is the first championship season. And by the end, I was effectively an equipment manager. I was in charge of all the ball boys for, you know, my last year with them was 87, which was another championship. And so I guess I've always been seeking experiences, seeking opportunities, seeking things that weren't predefined, I guess, or, you know, that, that people said, this is the way you move forward and just really enjoying all those new types of things. And that's, that's carried into my, into my life all along. So, uh, you know, as I got older, got deeper into uh, the arts, uh, went to performing arts junior high school and a performing arts high school. And even when I auditioned for the high school, uh, I said, then I'm doing all acting in high school because I'm going to major in lighting design in college. And it's like, who knows that early <laughs> that they're going to do lighting something design. as weird as a lighting design major in college. Uh, but that's what happened. And it wasn't, until, it wasn't until I was graduating from Boston University that I had a complete freak out because all of a sudden that line of what I knew needed to happen ended. It was now me going out into the world and uh, without any guide wires uh, and I, I think I broke down uh, in the office of the dean of theater. And uh, just, I guess it was a fear of what next. Uh, and and from that, it was it was really just realizing, uh, just continued doing what I had been doing all along. Uh, and I went back to Miami for a year to raise money, move out to Los Angeles got into the entertainment industry, had certain visions of what I wanted to have happen. Uh, I remember in my 20s, you know, so I moved out to L.A. in 93, uh, which was an interesting time because the boom of the 80s and early 90s with a lot of money uh, disappeared. So the fast track to fortune and, uh, and all these Hollywood dreams were, were no more. Uh, and, but I remember thinking, oh, I want to, I need to move up quickly. I need to move up quickly. I need to move up quickly. And w- I was frustrated always, you know, you're, you're in your twenties and you really want to do stuff. And, uh, and so in a matter of just a few years, I'd made it to having, uh, being a creative executive for ABC, uh, in movies and minis. And then I realized, well, this isn't what I want. And, uh, I think that I had always been open to change. Uh, the fact that I had changed schools in the middle of middle school uh, to go to a new, to take a new slot that had opened up in the performing arts middle school, I think that was a great lesson for me 
about embracing change because I, I remember it wasn't easy at the beginning where I came home from the first day with all new people, knew everything after I'd been in a comfort zone before and saying to my parents, no, I want to go back. I want to go back. And luckily they said, no, you're not going back and uh, ended up really thriving in that opportunity. And that's just what I've taken since. And then to quickly get me to here, uh, I moved, I segued from creative development for film and television into digital, uh, whether it was marketing or uh, extension of story, uh, working globally uh, with, with markets, you know, all of Fox's markets, and then I worked with Warner Brothers in terms of international marketing and just really had a tremendous opportunity to, to experience different cultures and uh, how, see how work is done differently in different places. The fact that I was involved in digital realms, I was able to see where technology was going and, and educate myself on that and connect with a lot of people much smarter than me to see what the future might hold. And from that, uh, from a professional sense, segued into what I'm doing now with my company, Kaleidico, which is, uh, we are a futurist think tank, but we're also working with companies to, to envision their future and work towards that. But more importantly is the personal relationship. I, I was, I was able to run into, bump into somebody uh, around 15 years ago now that changed my life incredibly. And that's, that's my now wife, Elise Bamesberger, who really is a magical beast. And she taught elementary school for Los Angeles Unified School District for 20 plus years and just has a really great take on life. And I was able to go, or I have been able to go along for the ride with her, uh, and that has truly been a blessing in my life to be able to partner with her, learn from her, and tackle a lot of weird, crazy, sometimes uncomfortable uh, situations that have arisen as we've continued to grow our family and grow what we're doing. Uh, and then I'll, I'll, I feel like I've been talking forever, but. Interestingly, this year of the pandemic is my 50th year. So I, sell, I was able to have like one of the last birthday parties before lockdown uh, back in February. And uh, I sort of joke that in my 50th year, it's not so different than my first year on this planet. I'm doing just about the same amount of activity as I was when I was a little baby. Uh, and I'm doing as much learning it feels like I'm doing as much learning and having as much growth as I had in that first year as well. So it's really, I've looked at the, this pandemic as an opportunity really to take a breath and recognize what's important and start making motions towards the future that I really want, that we want, that uh, is a beneficial future that's not just about me first, but about us together, which is really cool. Ugh, it is spectacular. I wish you could see the biggest smile on my face. Jonathan, thank you for sharing that. Wow. Um, 
So this this full circle on the diversity, you know, as, as a youngster having folks come in from Haiti and welcoming them, you know, and just I am curious, you know, you're you're taking initiative. That was clearly a theme. You're welcoming all these folks. Um, was that what everyone else was doing? I'm curious if you were just kind of going around like everyone was just like, wow, look at this. We're creating a melting pot. It's awesome. Or were you um, more of a minority and being so comfortable with it? Do you recall? You know, I don't have the true answer for that. As when we're kids, we are sort of thinking still we're at the center and this is what everybody does. Uh, I've got to be honest, when I watched the documentary Cocaine Cowboys and saw that there was a some terrible uh, murder that happened less than a mile away from my home that I had no clue about. Uh, you know, and so I, I would like to think, I certainly know that in my community of friends, there was that welcoming. I was also in the arts, which there's just inherently a welcoming and, and uh, community-based spirit. So I'm, I would hope that that was there. Certainly it has manifested itself in Miami that Miami is really a melting pot city that celebrates the diversity and the the international feel so i can't i can't imagine i was alone in that yeah yeah that's fantastic your parents i so to be so directed that to know what exactly what you're going to do that's really spectacular and do you recall were your, were your parents in the arts did they know what to do with you were they just like go get them jonathan <laughs> we're cheering for you i mean really what what was their role my parents were extremely supportive and would look to facilitate what I was hoping for. So even if that was doing a lot of driving to get me to the arts programs, whether it was before I went to the arts schools, uh, they were just really supportive. And interestingly, my father, I think I gained a lot from my father as well because he had always played the clarinet you know, whether it was in marching band or whatever, it wasn't his profession, but uh, he was certainly always into music. And in 79, he started a community concert band in Miami that had a whole bunch of people with different professions that all came together on a volunteer basis to play music and perform music at, at regular scheduled concerts. So he started that in 79. It's still going to this day. Uh, it's, I think it's probably around anywhere from 60 to 70 members that are consistently getting together, of course, not during COVID, but to perform and, and really share in that joy of music. So I think between that, between my, my, my grandmother, who always took us to children's theater, uh, our family was... It, our family was entertaining, whether they wanted to be or not. Uh, but my parents were extremely supportive uh, in every way, shape, or form. We weren't a rich family uh, in terms of money. We were we we uh, we were certainly middle class. We had uh, I was wanting for nothing, but we were certainly rich in the support that we had for each other. Oh, I love. 
the love that you had and that is, um, I mean, when I first chatted with you, you have a groundedness about you and it's a, no surprise to me that that is the foundation that your parents provided. Um, before I get to the to Kaleidoscope more current, I am really curious about your journey in entertainment because it has shifted so much and your perspective on um, the role of big entertainment, you know, it's just when it was and anything about news, like three radio stations, everyone saw the same thing to now just a proliferation of it's coming at you from all angles. And whether it's the big houses, now you've got the, the Netflix and folks who weren't commonly thought of as, um, you know, producers. Just a little commentary on, on, on what's going on with that and how you think it's good or things that maybe aren't so good. I think that everything is... I think it goes into the, in terms of the business, it feels like it goes into the culture of human nature of wanting to retain status quo. And just because this was the way you brought up, this is the way you want it to be. And there are a lot of, there is resistance to change. And we've seen such a huge amount of change in terms of consumption over hell just taking from when the iPhone came out in 2007 to now a lot of people as, as everybody's lamenting oh movie theaters are closed movie th-. there are so many people that weren't even experiencing content in two hours or on big screens it was a lot of maybe 15 seconds 30 seconds three minutes on a small screen and I think that we are seeing Still, yes, there, it was three networks, then four networks, and then it was, at least in the States, uh, and it's obviously different in different countries, but it was limited, and now it's just you can get your content from everywhere uh, that's completely catered to your own whims at the time. There's something really spectacular in that people have an outlet to produce the content, to create something that people will want to see. The numbers are not as big as they used to be. And I remember when I was at ABC and I, was, I made the shift from creative development over to .com and looking at the numbers that we were engaging in a much different way than we were in the passive watching of a TV show. But the numbers at the time, even a, even a poor show, a poorly performing show would get a few million viewers a night and we were getting maybe a couple hundred thousand people to come to a site over the course of a week and the executives would, that I would talk to would sometimes, oh, that's irrelevant, it's, the numbers are so small. Now, there are certainly some shows that have been around for a while, not necessarily on the networks, but in other platforms that have a few hundred thousand viewers in a week and that's fantastic. So, it, it, it's that whole shift, and my hope is, is that creatives continue to not only create for the different platforms, for the different mediums that are available, but that the people that are holding the purse strings, that have the opportunity to break the mold that has been in the industry for a long time, to start delivering new experiences. Mm. Mm. Uh, Jonathan, you mentioned this navigating and this theme of seeking and embracing change because that whole disruption of entertainment 
you know, a lot of folks um, listen in about their own career development. So could you just segue for a moment as you moved from institutions or whatever, how did you, it was just kind of a natural thing. You followed it. How did you think about shaping your skills and your experiences um, in a way that was meaningful uh, and worked for you? It's, it's interesting because I think that I came up with an overall descriptor. So when people would say, what do you do? What do you do? I could say it and it could be encompassing of many different forms. So it, once I wasn't doing production or development for film and television, but I was doing online marketing or, or innovation, new technologies for storytelling, I, I really always consider myself to be a storyteller. So whether that's in theater, film, television, online, around a campfire, I feel like I'm a storyteller and connector. And so once I was able to do that umbrella or create that umbrella essence of what I'm passionate about, then it was a matter of anything that aligns with that works. I can still continue. And, and I, was, I was lucky because I worked under a woman named Susan Line at ABC who had come from publishing and into running the movies and minis net, uh, department at the network. She ultimately went on to uh, run primetime. Uh, she was uh, CEO for Martha Stewart's company for a time. She now has, has a VC firm that, that supports uh, female uh, founders, entrepreneurs. She's, she's an amazing person that told me early on, it's, it's okay to be diverse in what you're doing that you don't have to follow that single path. So once you realize that you don't have to stay on one rail and you could jump from rail to rail and only continue to grow your knowledge base and be able to bring a much more holistic view into what you're trying to achieve, with that mindset, then all of a sudden, anything becomes an opportunity. And and I I would relate that to the pandemic. The fact that everything closed down, that everywhere in the world was put on pause, it no longer was a matter of like, I've got to keep churning. I've got to keep doing this because if I don't, I'm going to fall behind. That wasn't the case anymore. And it, quite honestly, it still isn't the case. And there's a lot of people I've been saying since the beginning, we've been saying since the beginning, that the worst outcome out of this, other than, of course, the horrible loss of life and and uh, illness that people are experiencing, and, and certainly it's become a struggle from a economic sense for many people, but it's a tremendous opportunity because we get to stop, and we get to see what, like, we get to take a breath and really determine what's important, what really floats our boat, what is that thing that, am I happy with what I was doing? You, you hear so many times people in business, oh my God, I really can't stand what I'm doing, but it's a job, it's a paycheck. And, you know, and I'm not going to quit because I'm too afraid to find something else. Effectively, this pandemic fired all of us. We were all laid off in one way, shape, or form and forced to reconsider. And I think that hopefully... That's what we look back on 2020 is that opportunity that was provided for us to realize what we thought was absolute is no longer. What we thought was safe and kept us from doing what we enjoyed and, and really felt meaningful 
those chains are no longer on us. And in the middle of this pandemic, we decided we, decided we were going to do a virtual pop expo because all of the Comic-Cons were canceled at the, at the beginning of the lockdown, and we had been scheduled for some of our, our clients to represent them at these cons. And so we had relationships in, in the community with exhibitors and, and, and all that. And we said, what if we were to do this virtual? And going from, it wasn't like we were Comic-Con International saying, we're going to do something, take it from physical to digital. It was, we hadn't existed, period, as a convention. And we, in a matter of five weeks, created uh, an event that was chock full of live panels for two days. So 16 hours, or actually more than that, of programming with a, we, re, we utilized one of our clients, which is a company called Oxit, that it, it's a marketplace with, that allows, it's like a mixture of, of eBay, Shopify, and WhatsApp, where people can come in and have conversation and purchase the things they're passionate about. And I said, okay, if we're going to involve ourselves in this, because it was, there was no money promised. There was no, like, maybe we might break even, but ultimately it was, what else do we have to do right now? Every, like, everything's closed. And so we were able to put our energies into building this environment that we said we only want to do this if it is as close to being at a live event as possible. And through using, utilizing Zoom and other technologies, we were able to have live panels. Some of the panels that we had ended up being in the Comic-Con uh, version. Uh, but ultimately, we did this. We had 12,000 live viewers, and we were responsible for selling over $25,000 of exhibitor goods that they would have been stuck with had we not done this because there was no shows. And my challenge throughout as sort of the cheerleader was there was, there was the concern that was expressed by other producers of, oh, you know, we've, we've got to make this amazing because then we're going to look bad. And I was like, what are you worried about looking bad for? The expectation is, is nil. We're doing this amidst a pandemic where the fact that we're doing anything is phenomenal. And it was, you know, the fact that we were still working through that mindset of, of perceived perfection without considering the variables of an economy that was put on pause, a world that was put on pause, it just, it was a disconnect that I think we're still unfortunately feeling where everybody's pushing, we've got to get this back going, we've got to get this back going. And when we talk about what Kaleidico does, like that, it, it's just a major disjointed piece that I'm hoping we get over soon. Yeah. John, that's, that's so brilliant. First, kudos on this getting to your essence of what you're passionate about. I just want to reinforce that for all listeners. It's so powerful. It takes some time to figure that out. That is on us to figure out. And once once we do that, it's just super empowering, as you as you can see in your journey. I um, would love you to say more about this. You, you know, you I appreciate there you're helping people redefine success from you know their predefined ex, um, um, perception of perfection. What is it that you're seeing that's helping people? What thoughts would you have for folks when they think about their situation? Like, what are they not aware of that you think it would be helpful for them to be aware of so that more people can embrace this uh, as an opportunity and less about of what we've lost? I believe it's, it's really down to 
the pause and not, once you feel that you don't have to go at full speed and you can start to consider for a moment what's going on. And I'll use as an example, Black Lives Matter. BLM was around before pandemic. And I think most people, because we were all so busy in our lives, thought of BLM as, oh, it's just, you know, trying to bring up the black people, right? And, and bring awareness to that. And I think after the pandemic, when we actually had time to think about it, and it wasn't a surface realization, it was actually looking deeper, we were able to start exploring. It wasn't a question of Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter or versus whatever. It was really being able to focus on there's systemic issues that have led us to the point that we're at. And this, this can happen at a personal basis, too. There are systemic things. There are things that we've dealt with or that we didn't spend enough time to really consider. We were reactive, and we, we saw a barrier, and we got pissed off about the barrier as opposed to questioning, why is the barrier there? Why is this happening? And in the case of Black Lives Matter, you start seeing this is a systemic piece. This is, I was having a conversation with a dear friend from the UK that at the beginning of the conversation about BLM and wondering why is that necessary was positioning it as, well, slavery was a, a, that's a US thing. I can understand why you guys have an issue with it because that's something that's been around since you were created without taking any responsibility that, hell, slavery didn't begin with the United States of America. This situation was happening long before and, and UK was certainly a major part of that. And so it's, that contemplation that, that should happen to really start to see what's the reason. And through that, we start, getting, start having empathy. We start not flipping off the person in the car next to us that we feel might have cut us off without realizing, well, maybe they're struggling for one reason or other. Maybe their wife is in the hospital. Maybe their daughter just uh, got, they just got a call from school saying their daughter is sick. It, it, there's a myriad of reasons that might cause somebody to drive erratically. And we just have to be more forgiving of each other as much as we would like people to be forgiving of us, because this is a challenge. But that also means that there's all of these opportunities for small victories throughout the day. And one of those is trying to understand where people are coming from and not going through snap decisions based on what's convenient at that moment in time. So wise. I hope that answers what you asked for. It does. Very wise words. And, you know, it's less is more. It's hard. And to, to capture it the way you did, the, the fact that folks are struggling in ways that we don't know, the opportunity for the personal responsibility to just pause and contemplate the role that I'm playing in this. And, it, you know, it's a breath or two that can make a big big difference and celebrating the small steps, the small victories, I think is a way to keep it positive. And, you know, as you mentioned before, redefining what success looks like, we're still going in the right direction, maybe not at the speed or pace we thought was quote unquote, right before, but I'm not sure really that 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 frankly was the case, right? Or we wouldn't be where we are. Um, Jonathan Segway, we talked about, you know, this um, nonprofit, the work with your wife, some of the things uh, with your own family and uh, appreciate your sharing about that. Yeah, I think it, it's, interestingly, it runs along the same lines of what you can see and what you can't see. 
we, we have a 12-year-old daughter that was biological, and even before we had our daughter Jensen, we decided we were going to adopt our second child. And through a long process that I don't want to get into here, it was arduous, but it was we, we won the lottery. We got uh, a beautiful boy named Emery, who is now eight years old, uh, who is intelligent and loving and compassionate. Uh, he, he's, we had people saying, why would you adopt him? Uh, and the reasons usually were because he's black. He was born on crystal meth. Uh, and one, you know, wondering about what are all the issues that are going to come with that. And we just knew that there's no assurances in life anyway. And we, we met him on day six when he was taken right after he was taken off life support, uh, and fell in love immediately. How we even had a nurse in the, in the ward say, you're making a big mistake by doing this. He's never going to love you. He's never going to all these types of things. We worked, we, there were some issues, but we worked with him. Elise was uh, amazing in terms of we were driving for every support we could get, every type of uh, therapy, uh, feeding therapy, occupational therapy, every blah, 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 so that by the time he was three, he was, he was up to speed. And, and in fact, by the time he was four in preschool, he was doing uh, he was doing tremendously well and was probably at a level that he could have succeeded very well in kindergarten, unassisted. It was, it was just amazing. And I was, at this time, it was, uh, it was the first part of 2018. I was traveling all over the world, uh, speaking about the future, uh, the, you know, every, the confluence of artificial intelligence and robotics and, and genetics and, and blockchain, all these, all these different things, and really living a blessed life, except for the fact that my family wasn't with me, and that, that was not fun. But otherwise, it was great. But then while I'm in Mauritius uh, on this beautiful island, I'm struggling to be able to communicate with my wife, who's dealing with the fact that a week prior, uh, Emery had started just acting really weird behaviorally, and then it culminated the week later with a seizure at school. In fact, two, it seems like two seizures right in a row. Mm. And so, as you can imagine, that isn't fun to be in a place across halfway around the world uh, when your family's going through this. And in Emery's case, he kept on every treatment that he was getting that they said, oh, this will help with behavior. This is a, this will calm him. It was doing the opposite. And after going to a bunch of doctors and really we're in Los Angeles, there's amazing medical facilities here. There's amazing doctors here. We had learned previously how to work the medical system because my wife uh, had uh, gone through about with breast cancer. Uh, and so it was learning how to advocate in the medical community uh, to really communicate what's going on. We w kept on running into brick wall after brick wall, where even uh, we would have pediatric neurologists saying, well, he's five years old. Of course, he's going to have ticks. This is after he has a major episode and we're in the hospital overnight in the hospital. And that's what we're discharged with. Of course, he has ticks. And then the next day, well, he's, he's, he's a, a five-year-old black boy. Of course, he has ADHD, which blew my mind. Uh, and then we're dismissed. And ultimately, through, 
through a lot of hard work and, you know, people joke about getting a, a Google MD uh, doing research online for whatever is ailing them, we were able to find out that this is, whether it's termed pandas, pans, autoimmune encephalitis, he has a situation where his immune system starts creating antibodies that start attacking the brain. The basal ganglia is, is the primary source of inflammation that is responsible for fight or flight. And in Emery's case, it was all about the fight. It was all about a, a major aggression. He would change from a loving boy to this person that at one institution, they said we should put a 72-hour psych hold on him. And we were like, there's no way we're letting him out of our eyes. But got to be honest, there were many times that we were thinking, what is going on here? How do we deal with this? Because it certainly turns your life around. I, I had to... Obviously, I got back to the States as quickly as I could. I had to cancel uh, all subsequent talks around the world. Uh, and I couldn't do anything. I couldn't be anywhere. We were getting tests. We were doing all this. And PANDAS uh, is something that a lot of the medical community doesn't believe is true. And it's the fact that strep or some other virus, PANDAS is more of an umbrella, uh, pediatric autoimmune uh, or pediatric acute neurodeficiency associated with strep is pandas. And I, I'm sorry if I'm getting that wrong. It's still early in the morning for me. But, uh, but ultimately, it's, it's, it could be triggered by having a, a, a strep or, or some other reaction. And it's inflammation that causes behavioral issues, ODD, ADHD, uh, eating issues. Uh, a lot of the things that you see along the lines of autism, uh, grades start going backwards. So kids that could write beautifully in cursive can't write anymore at all. Math is a problem. And so we fought to get support for Emory for the months and months, and it was, it was pretty hellish. And we finally were able to get a, a treatment that was very hard to get, it was, we were able to get it at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, which is a renowned institution where, interestingly, 93%, or I'll go backwards, only 7% of the patients there are Caucasian or Asian, right? So everybody else is Hispanic or black, and Emory was the first non-Caucasian or Asian patient to get this treatment which was, it's, a, it's an intense treatment called IVIG, uh, which is two days of transfusions to basically overload the immune system with antibodies that aren't going to attack the brain. And uh, he, he, we saw an immediate uplift. It was phenomenal. It was amazing. And this was right after Christmas of 18 that we got it. A week later, we're talking to Jensen, our daughter, who was in all of her standardized testing was, was tr doing tremendously well uh, over like if, if three was average, she was at fours, all of a sudden the bottom dropped out for her. And we realized we were scared to say anything because we were concerned that we were going to be blamed for Munchausen's that we were just making this stuff up. But when it all came down to was that our daughter had the same exact thing. And so to have two kids, 
that are not biological come down with the same issue that is a lot of people, you know, we would have doctors saying, you know, half the medical community believes this exists, half doesn't. And I'm on the fence. Well, if you're on the fence, then you're not. You don't believe it exists and you're not going to give treatment. And because there's so much disbelief that this exists, and part of that is uh, there's numerous reasons that we can't get into again. I wish that we had the four hours, but mm-hmm. it's all about... It's all about these antibodies crossing the blood-brain barrier, which when people talk about the blood-brain barrier, they speak of it as if it's the Great Wall of China that's impenetrable. And now here we are in 2020, based on everything that we've had to do with our kids to get support for our kids and try to learn as much as we can through the resources that are available, try whatever treatments we can get our hands on, and join groups of people that are talking about this, that are deep in the trenches, we started to realize that, okay, this is, we, when, we, when everybody else got into lockdown, we had already felt we were in lockdown. That feeling of, you don't know if you're going to be able to leave, because in our case, we didn't know how our kids were going to be, if we could be, if we could survive outside of the house, because we feared that they would go off the rails, or that there would be some major response that in order just to, We've spent time where we're on the floor in a parking lot at a shopping mall trying to calm our son down from having a, an episode and getting this weird, the weird stares from people. You know, imagine also the fact that I'm white and I've got a black kid and people are seeing how I am. We would have, we would have people of all members, all different kinds of members of community coming up to us telling us how we should work with our children, having no idea what was actually going on. It was all surface. And wow. in terms of surface, if, if our kid had cancer, the whole world would have come around to support. And I'm not saying, like, I don't want to sound horrible with this, but if, it's, or if, if my kid had some other deformity that was visually, that there was a visual cue that something was going on, the support would have been different. The fact that these kids do look gorgeous, these kids, before they're afflicted, are usually just really intelligent. And it's only if you're with them day after day after day that you realize, wait a second, we lost a step here. And Elise, being a teacher for so long, she was a study. She, was, she studied kids. It wasn't just these are my kids. It was all of these kids, you know, 25 kids in a class at least every year. She had a huge amount of information that she was able to look at and realize this is not right. And so yeah. from that, we, from that experience, and hoping that other people don't have to go through this, we decided that we were going to create an opportunity to give back uh, through the Impact Change Foundation. We came up with Impact instead of Impact. Is, it is a play on impact, but M, M meaning empathy or alluding to empathy is, is really important. And yes. so, yes. you know, we were actually, we were going mm. to launch this in February for real and start getting funding and, and all of that. We, we just formed the 501c3 at the end of 19, and we were going to do a big launch in February. And then through intuition or whatever, the, a, a sense of knowingness, we said, let's hold off because we had already seen what was happening with coronavirus all around. And yep. we were concerned about going out asking for money when a lot of people didn't know what was going on. Yeah. And Jonathan, I'm and, going to uh, jump in. I'm so yeah, I'm sorry. I'm so no, I'm so proud of you and Elise and sharing this and it's you know it's 
tribute to you, and it's hard to hear. And I appreciate you bringing it out and creating awareness for it. And my heart is out to, you know, all parents when you're trying to really do the right thing for your child, and it's tough. So I, I we will share links with folks to be able to get in touch with you. Um, and it's, you know, the kids are really fortunate, and I know that you and Elise think you're fortunate for the learning um, and the gift that they're providing you. That is a really amazing and I think gives us great perspective as we round out this year. Um, I guess I'll just close off with one question for you because you've been very open-hearted. What, uh, what was it like to share your story today? Great. <laughs> uh, you know, just the nature of what we're trying to do in terms of, of get the word out for impact change or just forget impact change, just what, what, what kids are going through, what we're all going through. And, and trying to bring a lightness and trying to raise awareness. Uh, because unfortunately with everybody, we've all got friends that are, that have a tendency to start thinking negatively and start getting into that woe is me mentality. Uh, and they, they lose sight of the goodness and the things that are really exciting. And so mm-hmm. I, I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to share this. Well, I am grateful for you, my friend, and I am here for you. If I can be of more help, you. you know how to reach me and you let me know. I'm going to thank you for being part of the solution and wish you and your family a very open-hearted welcome to 2021 with lots of hope and optimism. You take good care, Jonathan. Okay. Wow. Great perspective. We're going to stay on the West Coast, actually, and I'm going to welcome Prashant to the show. Prashant, welcome to Say It Skillfully. Good morning, Molly. How are you? I'm doing fabulously. Thank you. I really appreciate your calling in. So share with me, what is on your mind today? You know, even before I do that, I just, uh, you know, wanted to share how I uh, I just heard, uh, I dialed in and was able to learn more about impact change and the meaningful, powerful story that Jonathan shared, such a noble heart. Um, so thank you for giving people a platform to, um, you know, to share uh, their message with the world. Uh, what I was calling in for primarily, I, I, and, uh, you know, you know, I have followed your work for quite some time and have benefited tremendously um, from it. Uh, you know, we have this saying going on in our, in with my wife and some of my colleagues, and we find ourselves in, in difficult situations, we try and think, uh, WWMD, what would Molly do? <laughs> so, um, I love it. Yeah. But, you know, so one of those things, one of those situations, uh, you know, I think quite a few of us have come across, and that's what I was calling in, just to get your perspective on. Um, you know, quite a few times, let's say, you know, we've seen uh, somebody else, let's say, take credit for our work, like something that let's just, I worked on or a colleague worked on for many, many months, but somebody else just, you know, kind of takes full credit for it. How do you deal with a situation like that? Like it's, you, I mean, so do you see where I'm going with this? Um, oh, yes. How, did, how do you deal yeah. when someone takes credit for the entire team's work as if they were the only one who did it? Is that what exactly. I'm hearing? Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. thank you for raising that. That is... Um, that has happened only once to me, fortunately, and I have seen it happen to others, so it's very real. Before I um, share, in this situation for you, Prashant, is this someone 
who has a reputation for taking credit, or was it really a shocker? Um, so it's uh, it wasn't one incident, but um, let's just go with like I've you know I've had I've experienced it, and I've talked to people uh, who have experienced this, right? So uh, let's just say it's somebody who uh, has a reputation for. Uh, let's say, trying to do things for themselves before anybody else. Great. Okay. So I appreciate that. I'll offer a couple angles on it. And I do want folks to have confidence that, you know, this is probably not lost on a lot of people. And thinking about it, it's not about making someone else look good or bad. It is about the transparency for what the reality really is. And I think it can feel like an attack potentially or taking down someone and encourage folks to realize that as part of an organization, part of everyone's responsibility is to help create an accurate shared reality for what's going on. And that serves the whole. So it takes it, I think, a little depersonalize it a little bit can help empower you to feel a bit more confident about speaking up. So in a moment, and so I could imagine this happening, let's just say we're shocked. So we'll go back to the proactive thing second. But if it's happening point in time, I think a way to create transparency and to take the high road as someone is sharing this is saying, oh, um, James, wonderful to hear the uh, work that's done. I can see the impact. And I'm sure many other folks Wade in. Could you help us with some of the folks and their roles in the project? Again, light, and you're wanting to just understand, you know, because it's such a big project, far more than one person could do, and give them a chance to recover. So this is assuming the positive intent. Now, in this case, you may know that this is this person's MO. However, let's give them a chance to save face, wink, wink, and, and, and backpedal a bit and bring others into the fold. So I'll pause there. How does that land for you? Yeah, that's um, very helpful. Like you said, you know, first depersonalize it and then ask questions, clarifying questions to give them a chance. Uh, I think that that's a, that's a good start. So let me just yeah. kind of play this back. Let's say we don't have the opportunity to sort of, you know, not challenge this person, but, you know, kind of play it back with them right at the moment. Let's just say, mm-hmm. You know, you're in a board meeting, somebody took credit for all of the team's work, and you can't call this out. You can't, you know, talk about the process in front of a board, as an example. Yep. Uh, it's after the fact, and, you know, now you're doing this, um, you know, now you have to problem solve it. Like, the team is yeah. demoralized, and, you know, so how, yeah. how do you, how, you know, that will be my next question for you. That's fantastic. So, James, hey, appreciate the the meeting that we just had. And um, have, want some, to bring something up to you about how the team feels is now a good time. So getting some permission so the person feels like there's some control about when they talk about it. Yeah. Okay, now it's a great time. James, yeah. great. James, I value you as a teammate. And I know that you want us to, you know, as a company, be, be great. And I feel a great responsibility to you as a teammate to um, share information that if I were you, I would want to know. So your intention is very clear. You're not attacking him. You're just saying that if I were in your shoes, I'd want to know this. When you said X, Y, Z, how do you think the whole team felt? And just X, you know, I'm just wondering, how do you think the team felt? So you're leaning in, you're energetic. And just force them and say, and if they don't, and say, this is the deal. I have to be, and if they're not, if there's someone you have to kind of beat over the head, I need to be really upfront (laughs) with you. 
right? Like, yeah. I'm super disappointed that that was, the, those were the words that you used. And here's why. Yeah. Because, da-da-da-da-da, and here's the impact. How's that, Lynn? Yeah. yeah. No, I think it's a very um, indulgent way of kind of approaching this. Like you said, start with asking for their permission to have this conversation and then uh, just asking more, letting them talk more, asking clarifying questions. How, how did you think the team um, felt? And I think anybody smart enough will know where this is going. So um, I, I think it's a good way. Uh, uh, okay, my last question, let's say, on this topic is, um, what if this colleague is not, let's say, a colleague, let's say it's your manager, right? And you want to, let's say, you know, avoid making, sounding confrontational about this or, you know, not being a team player and, you know, et cetera. So um, how, how would same. you deal with a conversation like this? with, with Exactly the same. Exactly the same because you yeah. have this fear, which is to say, ah, uh, I don't want to come across. Just write directly in the eyes. And Prashant, your tone of voice and your lightness, I don't want to come across as, you know, negative and not a team player. So you're light, you're on your toes, you're leaning forward because Understood. you're doing this to do the right thing for the organization. So this is where I would say to you, look in the mirror and say, look at you're leading. You're leading from the front yeah. and you're doing this to help everyone else. So, you know, wow. know that that's a very noble intention and the right thing. We're not always right about it, but it's, it's the right intention. Right. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. I, you know yeah. how to reach me. I'm grateful for your calling in. Please uh, <laughs> keep me in touch with how it goes and um, offer um, you and your loved ones a wonderful, wonderful holiday and bright start to the new year. You take good care. Thank you. You too, Molly. Ciao, ciao. Okay. I appreciate you leaning into conversations that you need to have happen, just like Prashant. And I'll re reinforce one thing that's core to saying it skillfully, and that is being true to yourself. And by doing so, you can best help those around you to be their best selves and play a role in shaping a world where everyone is involved in creating a better future. So my thought for the week, celebrate you by being yourself. No one does it better than you. And that's a wrap. My heartfelt thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Reflect on your top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality, essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out SayItSkillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too. 